Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, Episode 7, the Extreme Cinema Edition. I'm Scott Tobias, editor of the Dissolve. On today's bone-chilling, mostly Halloween-themed episode, we examine the horror trends of yesterday and today. How do we get from slasher films to torture porn to found footage to haunted house movies? We also talk to Rodney Asher, the director of Room 237, a documentary that compares the many crackpot theories offered about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Our game this week is Real Estate, that's real with two E's, in which I offer real estate listings for famous houses and buildings and movies and ask our panelists to name that movie. Then we close as usual with our terrifyingly brief recommendation face-off, 30 seconds to sell. Slay tuned, Dissolvers. More than any other genre, horror films tend to come out in cycles. We get a lot of one type of film before it dies out and another wave of films take its place. In the last decade alone, we've seen the rise of extreme cinema, or torture porn if you like, with its emphasis on shocking hard R violence, found footage style horror in the Blair Witch Project vein, and a revival of the haunted house movie. What drives those trends, and how do we feel about them? Here to discuss are Tasha Robinson. Hello, Tasha. Hi, Scott. And from our uh, Conway, Arkansas office, uh, Noel Murray. Hello, Noel. Hello, Scott. So, Noel, you first. Uh, Why do you think horror films tend to come in waves? Well, I mean, the basic sort of cynical response is that it's just bandwagon jumping. I mean, somebody comes up with a good idea, like Blair Witch Project or Saw, and other people kind of jump on that and try to capitalize. But I I think it's also sometimes just something in the national mood that may prompt a certain kind of movie to to erupt. Like in the case of torture porn, you know, that that sort of became a prominent genre in the wake of Mm 9-11. And I I think to some degree it was a response to the sort of yearning for revenge and how far we were willing to go to get revenge for a horrible act. You know, I, I think that played a large, a large role in these more violent movies that had to deal with terrible things happening to people and them having to respond to it. Sure, we're talking about, here about movies like Saw and the, the Hostel films and Devil's Rejects and those, those sorts of movies. Tasha, what do you think? Well, horror is also just very, very novelty-driven. I mean, it's been kind of mining some of the same minds for decades on end. So it seems like there's always sort of a drive to, a, you know, can we find something new that's scary? And one of the things we've seen a lot of in, in the past couple of decades is uh, this idea of going to other countries uh, and finding something new that they're doing in the language of their horror films. So you have the whole wave of J-horror that kind of followed uh, Gore Verbinski's The Ring. And suddenly you have, you know, The Grudge and Juan and the Dark Water remakes, all of these movies emulating that. And then that was kind of followed by like a wave of sort of Mexican ghost stories uh, coming out of, I think, more than anything, uh, Guillermo del Toro. So I, there's, I think, a, a tendency to do that kind of bandwagon jumping when it comes to horror thematically. Like everybody was totally scared by the ring. Let's all make ring movies. Mm-hmm. But partially that's just, hey, we found a new aspect to horror that actually does scare people. Like let's let's exploit that. Let's see how deep we can go into that and how deep we can kind of go into people's psyches in the process. Yeah, I mean, there's a societal model and a, and a commercial model in a way because you've got, always had these anchors. You have Saw, you have the Paranormal Activity movies when you're talking about like found footage and haunted house films, these movies that prove that they can, you can be successful. Then you can kind of riff on that style in a lot of different ways. I think there are some distinctions you can make between each of these little subgenres that we're talking about, too. I think, Noel, you, I think you're absolutely right about what torture porn means. You know, horror films always have this wonderful way of addressing issues in the culture before 
other films do or straightforward dramas do. I mean, you know, we couldn't dramatize something like 9-11 right after it happened. Very few films did anyway. But you can kind of capture the national mood. You can kind of exercise these issues in the horror genre. And that's been true of horror films from the 70s too, which kind of referenced, you know, Vietnam before other films did, more uh, conventional films. Yeah, there was also that sort of weird subgenre of horror movies in the late 60s and early 70s that demonized hippies. Mm-hmm. Uh, that took the whole uh, idea of the counterculture and, and how it was challenging societal norms and used it as a something to be terrified of. You know, yeah, Last House on the Left did both, right? Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. Last House on the Left was both kind of a, a vaguely a Vietnam referencing film and a film about crazy hippies. And then in the 80s, you know, you have this huge string of movies that have to do with young people kind of doing drugs and having sex in the woods. And it's addressing the whole concept of liberation of youth culture and how there's got to be some sort of moral fight back against that, usually in the form of people getting stabbed a lot. Yeah, it's very Reagan-y. Um, <laughs> uh, well, then the other thing, too, though, is has to do with technology. And I think that explains some of the found footage films that we've been seeing, you know, because it's not like the Blair Witch Project came out yesterday that was 1999 and a lot of this, this wave of found footage films are much more a response to the tools of the medium of, of having digital cameras and lots of them and being able to, to just let footage burn and burn and burn without costing you anything that kind of opens up uh, avenues in terms of what you can do in horror and I think one aspect of that uh, that we're seeing is kind of like a little mini trend is the rise of uh, anthology horror films things like the the ABCs of death I think went furthest with it in terms of having a a bunch of little micro horror shorts where they actually like went to their audience and said you can be included in this anthology just submit a you know here's here's the category here are your parameters make a short film and it'll be included in a major release I think you know you see things like Chilling Visions or the VHS uh, series and whatnot I think we're going to see more of those as people realize they can kind of crowdsource horror features by crowdsourcing horror shorts shorts, which are much easier to make with today's technology. You know, there's there's kind of the um, accessibility of the medium extends more readily to shorts. It's it's easier for a small filmmaker or a first-time filmmaker to make something on a smaller scale than to make something on a feature scale. But, you know, then if they can get on the right bandwagon with a bunch of other people, suddenly there's a feature. And one thing I kind of like about those anthology films, because they are, like all anthology films, very mixed. I mean, ABCs of Death is worse than mixed, in fact. But I like that it brings together independent horror film, filmmakers into a kind of a cohesive collection, right? I mean, people like Adam Wingard and, and, and Ty West and well, I guess we can count Joe Swanberg as a horror filmmaker now. But I, mean, but I like the idea of these genre filmmakers kind of recognizing each other and coming together and creating something and trying to build kind of a cult around them, these films and around themselves. Otherwise, you know, I, I think it's a vast wasteland, the, the world of indie horror, I think, as, as Noel knows very well from his Midnight to Midnight column. Yeah, and, and from watching a lot of short films. I mean, I, th- I think what I like about the anthology films is that they also offer an opportunity to innovate I think it's easier to innovate in a five-minute setting than it is to innovate over 75 or 80 or 90 minutes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, one thing I also wanted to bring up, too, because it would be the big trend now, which is the Haunted House movie. And this is tied in, I guess, to Paranormal Activity, which is sort of, or maybe which serves as sort of a segue between found footage and, and the Haunted House movie. But it's kind of been cheering to see... You know, movies like, you know, The Conjuring and uh, I guess it's all James Wan, <laughs> but <laughs> The Conjuring and uh, Insidious kind of come along and, and practice these sort of horror 
fundamentals and, and prove that they can still work now just as well as they did, you know, when The Haunting or The Innocence or something like that, those sorts of films came out. Well, just this year, I mean, you also have The Purge, which is kind of a classic home invasion thriller. I didn't like it much, but it was very, very financially successful because it was made for a relatively small amount of money. And Mama, which I loved, I thought was a, that was a terrific movie. And that's a fairly classic haunted house horror film, except for the fact that it kind of goes uh, the route of the host and has the the thing up front. Like there isn't a whole bunch of teasing about what it what it is you're seeing. Mm-hmm. It's pretty blatant about like is this it, is what the ghost the, looks like. Is it in the title? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, there it, there's not a whole bunch of teasing about what the specter looks like. Okay. It's not something where it's off screen for the entire film until the last five minutes. No, it shows up pretty early and you get to see exactly how creepy it is. And that just kind of heightens the horror as it did with the host. But I, I kind of feel like all of the home invasion and haunted house movies some of them are kind of playing off of religious themes, but I, I do wonder if in a cultural sort of way, they're kind of tied into this post 9-11 feeling of not really feeling safe in your own home due to, you know, terrorism everywhere, uh, school shootings everywhere, just kind of this sense of we're no longer impregnable where we live. We have to worry about having every aspect of our lives taken over by fear. I, I, I want to go back just for a second to what Tasha was talking about with the, the Killer in the Woods movies of the 80s. As somebody who's always been fascinated by how movies tie to their times, both in the terms of their style and, and what they're about, I'm fascinated by these horror series that stretch out over a long period of time and have these subtle changes from year to year and decade to decade, yeah. like Friday the 13th, you know, which started out as one of those Halloween-style masked killer movies set in a summer camp setting, you know, a lot of darkness, and then gradually over the years evolved into, for a time, it was kind of a comedy uh, a little bit. Uh, and then the villain becomes more of a comical outsized supervillain. Uh, he ceases to be sort of a creeping terror. We talk about these trends and how they uh, change from time to time. But there are also these things that recur from age to age. There are movie franchises and there are ideas like The Haunted House or, or like The Ghost that come around again and again and again. But they change a little bit with each passing year. I, I, I find that fascinating. So, uh, as a sort of to wrap this up, I actually wanted to ask you all if you have a favorite subgenre. Is there is there a type of horror film that you'd like to see more of in, in the future? Maybe one you'd like to go away. Well, I mean, I'm so over torture porn. I was never particularly interested in it in the first place. So this is one of the many, many things Scott and I disagree on. I can well, understand. That's a terrible. Torture, torture porn was a, was a pejorative uh, phrase. You don't, you don't uh, like the phrase extre- torture porn. We, we call it extreme cinema, Tasha. You, those of you who like it or see a lot of resonance in it call it extreme cinema. I just find it exploitative and unnecessary. I understand, I can understand the rich political thematic elements behind torture porn, which I'm going to continue to call it that, without in any way seeing any value in it as a cinematic movement. Well, okay. so, well hit me with something positive then. What do you want to see? You know, I I would be perfectly happy to see, <laughs> this is going to sound so silly. I like, I go back to Alien as one of my favorite horror movies. And I would love to see more of that kind of like serious uh, science fiction horror as opposed to the leprechaun in space style <laughs> uh, science fiction horror where the the joke element of the series is eventually we take it into space. I just I feel like there's so much horror to be exploited in like Cronenberg's body horror or the different kinds of thing masquerade, the Body Snatchers series, the thing masquerading as human uh, horror, which I think you get more in 
things with a little more of a science fiction element than you do in nominally real world stuff like the Friday the 13th movies. The sort of fantasy elements of the Friday 13th movies or the Halloween movies, you know, the supposed human being who just can't be killed, that bothers me in a story that's theoretically taking place in the real world. If you put it in a science fiction setting, suddenly you can do anything. And if you can justify it, if you can justify it with mood, if you can justify it with tone, then uh, then it works. What about you, Noel? Um, no more zombies. Can you do zombies? <laughs> and, and I say that as somebody who is a, a huge, you know, George Romero zombie uh, saga fan, but I just I don't think there's anything else that can be done with zombies at this point. Uh, prove me wrong. No, don't prove me wrong. Don't stop. Just quit. Stop making them all together. <laughs> I mean, if Romero can't do it well anymore, then I don't. I don't think we can count on anyone else doing it well. Are well, you going to get at least one more World War Z movie, if not, you know, a dozen of them? Yeah. Um, as for what I would like to see. Maybe something I haven't seen before. I don't know. I don't know what what that would be. But I, I, you know, I watch a lot of these kind of edgy independent horror movies, and the ones that impress me the most are ones that are more like character studies. One I, I liked a lot uh, recently called Alice Kills, which is about a young woman kind of gradually coming to realize what she's capable of, and the horror elements creep in slowly from the beginning. That is not at all horrific. It reminded me a little bit of something like George Romero's Martin. Another, you know, movie, it's a vampire movie, but it's more of a character study. Um, for, for me, I, I don't want to see any more PG-13 horror movies. <laughs> that, you know, I mean, Tasha and I might disagree about extreme cinema uh, and, and the value of that. But I, I was quite kind of cheered to see uh, a movie like Sinister, <laughs> which is really, really a hard R horror film. And I just, I like it when the films have a lot of impact and you really feel like the safety net is cut away a little bit. It's very disturbing, but you know, unnerving in a good way too. I mean, I enjoy being unnerved as much as anybody else. I'm in, I'm loving the current horror trend of, I think moving away from extreme bodily grotesquery, just the, the ways in which a human body can be turned into wet meat in detail and the move back (laughs) towards the atmospheric. I mean, the conjuring is a very frightening movie, but it's very atmospheric. Mama is a very frightening movie, but it's very atmospheric. All of these things are more about suggestion and the unknowable than the very very knowable of you know human anatomy and it interests me much more horror classicism i I, i'm for that as well whoever directed the strangers needs to needs to follow that up soon uh so thanks very much noel and tasha thank you thank you Our next movie of the week is Stanley Kubrick's great, perplexing horror movie, The Shining. While we were watching the film again and struggling to figure it out, we couldn't help but think of Room 237, a wonderful documentary that assembles a few of the elaborate left-field theories some fans have offered on it. Is it about Native American genocide, or is it Kubrick's apology for his part in faking the moon landing? Joining Tasha and I to talk about The Shining and its openness to interpretation is the director of Room 237, Rodney Asher. Hello, Rodney. Hey, Scott. One of the things that kind of struck me about the film was how it is a film that is both very inviting to different interpretations and very uh, resistant to them as well. What do you think it is about The Shining perhaps more than any other Kubrick movie that inspires such a wide range of interpretations? Well, I mean, even on the surface of it, you know, even just looking at the story, it asks, you know, a couple of big questions that never get answered. You know, the way it ends on that black and white photo with that July 4th, 1921 date, you know, in some ways that's presented as if it's a rosebud moment from Citizen Kane, but it isn't as if that lights up a, a, a light bulb on top of your head and puts everything into perspective and makes you say, oh yes, of course, now I get it. If anything, you know, that's, 
the beginning of an entirely new mystery because, you know, that date and that party aren't anything that is really discussed at any depth, you know, within the movie. You know, and there's the scene in room 237 when Danny walks into the room and we never see what happens. You know, in most horror movies, you know, they may save that, you know, as a revelation towards the very end, but we never learn directly, um, you know, what happened. Although, you know, people have their ideas about it. So, I mean, even on the surface level of the movie, there's these giant question marks, even though, like, the plot is fairly simple and the movie's long enough that it could have answered anything that it wanted to. So I think people are driven to try to watch it again to answer those kind of questions. And, you know, they just find themselves asking more and more and more. The movie has got, you know, sort of some space to, so, to, to, to move around and to think know these very long tracking shots moving through the hallways where you know there's time to you know kind of really pay attention to the carpet patterns and the pictures on the wall and I don't know the whole thing has just such a perfect um, nightmare fairy tale simplicity you know mommy and daddy and a little boy go away to a to, to a big hotel you know that you know psychologically everybody you know it just seems to have a really interesting direct way to connect to it I am sort of curious I, I mean it, do you think if we had this exact same film you know frame for frame but from another director would it provoke this kind of response I mean to what degree is just the the belief in Stanley Kubrick as this this magical craftsman in control of everything like feed into the the need to interpret yeah well I think that's a big part of it you know that you know coming off of you know how many masterpieces before The Shining but like in a way I had a similar you know response to The Master which I liked a lot but I didn't quite get the last act but because you know I'm such a fan of of, of P.T. Anderson's and you know, admire the work that he's done. My take on it was that I wasn't paying close enough attention. I need to think about it. I need to watch the movie again. So I think people who find loose threads or interesting questions within The Shining, you know, a lot of them say, in myself included, there's a plan here. And this is a guy who, this is a guy who works very deliberately. If I think about this hard enough, if I consult the right, you know, secondary source material, I'll find the answer. Yeah, and, and the master is another one where structurally it's very odd. It, uh, it's it's not a, not a cookie cutter production at all, um, and uh, uh, which which makes sense. Um, I was actually curious to ask you. This maybe is backing up a step or two, but what what, what is your own relationship to The Shining? Well, I mean, just that you know, Kubrick was you know you know one of my first favorite filmmakers. Um, in The Shining, you know, it's kind of stuck with me forever. I mean, I first saw it, you know, when it came out in the theater, I sort of snuck into it as a little kid, you know, and had to leave about 10 minutes ten minutes in because I was just sort of overwhelmed, you know, with fear and anxiety. So it kind of left its mark at that age. And, you know, I revisited it a few years later and really liked it. In fact, you know, I think, you know, as a you know, wise-ass, you know, teenager, I thought a lot of it was funny. But, you know, I kept returning to it like I do, you know, most all of his films. In the same sort of sense, I'm curious what your relationship is with this level of sort of uh, film theorism or film deconstruction. I mean, Room 237 is, is a very observational film in terms of looking at these people analyzing a movie. But I'm curious whether you yourself ever analyze movies on this level or kind of have pet theories or, or pet movies that you think about, like, breaking down to this degree. A little bit, but certainly not to the degree that, you know, the folks that we talk to do. You know, and I think part of this exercise was, you know, I was aware of, 
some of these theories and me and Tim who produced it would talk about them and research them but you know I had heard the Native American theme you know idea of the film you know for a while I don't remember if I had read Bill Blakemore's essay before um, me and Tim started researching the movie but I had trouble seeing it other than a handful of you know the obvious lines in the dialogue about the abandoned burial ground so Part of the fun of the project for me was finally taking the time to sit down and understand, you know, what these people had had written and what clues they had seen in order to put these theories together. I mean, you know, my own my, my own analysis. I don't know how many original ideas I've had. You know, certainly I saw Starship Troopers, you know, as you know a wildly sarcastic <laughs> movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that I've overturned a lot of rocks that other people haven't, you know, on my own. Right, as having a completely, you know, left field, original kind of grand theory about any one film or another. Not a ton of them, and not a ton of them. Maybe, maybe, maybe a couple if I would, <laughs> if I would think back. But it's not the kind of thing that I do all the time, for sure. Yeah, and in a way, in order to have a theory like that, and I think this is borne out in, in Room 237, is that you have to be a bit myopic about the thing you're seeing. You have to you have to only look for this one thing that sort of confirms your take on the movie and then ignore every other piece of evidence that comes before you, right? Well, I mean, that's one way to look at it. I mean, I think for me, a, a question that I liked that I've never been able to solve, you know, is whether, you know, people see their own obsessions reflected back at them based on, you know, a handful of, stray items or whether they share these same obsessions with you know the filmmaker you know in this case you know a lot of folks are talking about you know themes like you know nazis or native americans or you know the moon landing or what have you that there's a lot to say that he might have been obsessed with these ideas and that certainly world war ii you know so um being a like-minded soul who's recognizing a subtle hint <laughs> that, that someone has left for you is related but different from someone you know who's just seeing something reflected back you know from random data you know in the shining is you know a meticulously crafted object made largely you know to the specifications of one person so it's not fair to call most of the things in it random I mean, you did do extensive uh, conversations with the interview subjects sort of outside the area of the film. Did you get the feeling that the guy that's obsessed with the reflections of Nazis in film or the guy that's obsessed with the you know oppression of the Native Americans, that they're seeing that in other films as well? You know, that's a good question. We actually didn't go there. We hmm. really, we really, you know, tried to keep the focus on this thing as narrow as possible, you know, that the idea would be we dig a, a very narrow hole and dig very deeply into it. Outside of other Kubrick films, we didn't stray too far. You know, certainly Jeffrey Cox, who talks about the Nazi themes, talks about other Kubrick films, you know, and he's written a book on the subject, The Wolf at the Door, where he, where he sees those, where he sees some of those references in some of the other films. Actually, Julie Kearns, who did some of the maps and talks about like the mythology um, symbolism in the movie, did talk about, interestingly enough, um, is it The Passenger, the um, Jack Nicholson and Antonioni yeah. film? Yeah. And the idea, and this is an idea that other people have had too, which is kind of interesting, that um, Kubrick and I suppose other directors would cast actors hoping a little bit of the baggage from some of their previous films would come along with them. You know, so when John Thel Ryan is saying that, you know, it's interesting that the guy who plays the summer caretaker, Bill Watson, who had just played... Um, Judas Icariot, and that maybe a little bit of that kind of leeches through. Hmm. She was seeing something similar by casting Jack Nicholson, that that's giving us sort of a footnote that opens us up into 
open in, into the passenger and some of the themes related in that film. But I didn't get the sense that, that they would think that every movie they saw, you know, was about these these same pet interests. When Scott was talking about discarding every part of the film that isn't really part of a given, you know, pet conspiracy mm-hmm. theory, it, one of the things that fascinates me so much about Room 257 is the degree to which all of these people seem to discard the narrative, you know, the, the meat of mm-hmm. the film, the thrust of the film itself. I mean, this is a very atmospheric horror film, and it's very pulpy material. You know, it's Stephen King's story was more literary than than this take on it what we have is kind of a a pulpy yet intellectual horror film like full of blood and an axe murder and and yet you know all of this all of the substance has been discarded in favor of a theory about uh, moon landing apologia it just it fascinates me the degree to which a like a horror film could be mined for this kind of like intellectual substance well, it's interesting. I think, you know, the, diff- the different people that we talk to might have different responses about their interest in, you know, the narrative of the film. But, you know, Jay Widener, who talks about the, you know, the moon landing stuff, I- I explicitly said that, and as a Stephen King fan, and as a fan of the book, um, that he wasn't satisfied with the narrative. In fact, he has an amazing line towards the end where he says, you know, not only did, did Kubrick fake the moon landing footage, but in a way he faked making The Shining. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, where do you stand on on Stephen King's take on you know this this whole thing just being a, a terrible adaptation and a terrible flub of a film? Well, I don't know. It's funny because you know we're living in a world in which you know the lawnmower man exists. <laughs> <laughs> More's the pain. And there's been an awful lot of Stephen King adaptions, and some of them are really good, some of them less so. I mean, I think maybe he just has you know a personal connection you know to this book you know, that was more autobiographical than most. So things being changed within it, you know, might have, might bother more than in a, in another story that was, you know, more just, you know, an an exercise in fiction. And I was actually surprised when I read the book, you know, most recently, how much of it is in the movie. Yeah. You know, it's like people talk a lot about how much of it was changed, but, you know, every book gets changed pretty dramatically in the course of, adaptations and do you um, want the hedge animals in the in the movie <laughs> i don't i don't think you do i like the movie and i like the book i don't know that we need to choose or that you know i, I certainly don't demand absolute fidelity in a film adaptation i mean I, i'm a big fan of of the mist and they oh. made up an entirely new ending you know for that i think stephen king liked that one so it isn't just fidelity to the original that makes you know an adaptation successful Completely agree on that front. Uh, Tasha and I have arguments about adaptation we all do, the time, but I, but I, I absolutely I think you're really on to something there about Stephen King having a personal connection to the material that is, uh, you know, perhaps warping his view. Well, and also there's a, there's also the fact that Kubrick is a, it's a dominant vision. Uh, Kubrick's it's not like it's not like he's that King is not coming first in that film. Uh, That's true. The lawnmower man the- is is not really taking over society. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, Kubrick. It's Kubrick's vision, and I think there's kind of an element of you could probably read a certain amount of contempt, I suppose, that Kubrick seems to have for the genre in some some respects as well. Um, with the way he he does uh, certain things, I mean, and plays with it. It's it's not the it's not the friendliest adaptation of that book. But uh, in any case, I wanted to ask you, uh, Rodney, what what you have going on next? Because I thought, like, do you see yourself continuing to make you know these sorts of uh, essay films, or have you do you have other things in mind? There's like two major things that I've been you know developing over the past while one of them is another essay film but the other is also documentary but you know it'd be more original production also i'm doing a um an abc's of death 
um, for oh uh, nice oh really yeah for yeah, we, we were actually just too. talking about that so that that's great it's it's a pretty interesting lineup of directors they got for this second one yeah yeah look look what what, Can what, you tell what us what's which your letter? letter I'm not so, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say but it's okay. a good letter. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Rodney Asher, uh, you know, uh, Room 237 is on uh, DVD and Blu-ray. It's on uh, Netflix Instant. We highly recommend checking it out. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Sure thing. Good to talk to you guys. Now it's time for a new game I've devised called Real Estate, in which I offer fake real estate listings for houses and buildings in the movies, and you name that movie. For example, if I were to say spacious Riverside Dutch Colonial on Long Island, gateway to hell in the basement, motivated <laughs> seller, you would say... Amityville Horror. Horror. The Amityville Horror, right. 3D. Uh, now we're using our barnyard buzzers for this one. Uh, so any wrong answers get a one-point reduction. That, that is the Scott Tobias rule. I am Scott Tobias. Uh, uh, joining me are... Keith Thups. Nathan Raven. Tasha uh, Robinson. <laughs> All right, let's get started here, shall we? Beautiful steel and glass rental on a tranquil Wisconsin lake, easy driving distance from Chicago, stone throwers <laughs> prohibited, amenities include a time-traveling mailbox, Nathan Raven. Oh, God. Uh, that would be the lake house. Yes, that's right, the lake house. Yes. I was going to say the glass house, but then I switched it up. I know, that was that was with uh, Lily Sobieski. It was, it was indeed. Mm-hmm. Located in suburban Chicago, this mid-century modern architectural treasure is cantilevered over the ravines... <laughs> Uh, Keith? Ferris Bueller's Day Off. That is Ferris Bueller's mm-hmm. Day Off. And I was going to say, that, that my last line, can I say what my last line was? Sure. Perfect for storing the sports car you love more than your son. <laughs> yeah. that, it's a good that, one, right? That would have that helped uh, specify. That would have, right. I'm trying to, like, yeah, you're not supposed to get these quite so early. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, uh, so we've got one for one for Keith and one for, for Nathan. I Ta- need to rethink Tasha. my strategy. I, I'd assumed that these were all going to be haunted houses, that this was Halloween. Oh, you're yeah. right. I would definitely rethink that, Tasha. All right. <laughs> I'll, I'll work like, on that. like, this is not the scariest game I've devised. Oh, it's pretty scary from this perspective. <laughs> this four-bedroom houseboat is one of the largest floating homes on Seattle's Lake Union, with a spacious deck that a widower might use for staring wistfully out to sea. Sleepless in Seattle. Sleepless in Seattle, it is. Fucker lives on a houseboat in that shit. Yes, he does. He, in, he in, fucking in, does, man. No, <laughs> I've never, never seen that movie. Yeah, he he lives on a houseboat. That's some fucked up shit. Yeah, a houseboat. Damn. <laughs> oh. I don't for sleepless in Seattle, have nearly this level of profanity. Damn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that was far more profanity. All right, here we go. Let's try. Let's make this. This will be for Tasha. This is now it's for everyone. Uh, <laughs> you guys can't uh, guess. Gorgeous Beverly Hills mansion with eye-catching entryway staircase and a pool in the back. A classic house with columns that date all the way back to the 1970s. All the way back to the 1970s. All right, that that obviates my answer, which was going to be Sunset Boulevard. Oh, wrong. Negative one. Yes. I'm going to say the limey? No, that's negative one for you. Mm -hmm. Keith Phipps, a classic house with columns that date all the way back to the 70s. That's a line of dialogue from the film Clueless. Oh. Uh, Genevieve was very clever in suggesting that no. she, would have, she would have nailed that because she suggested it. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, so so a lot of, lot of uh, heartbreak on that one. Let's do this one. This is a, this is a quick trigger finger type of. Question. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Clueless was the one for me. You, have we met? Scott um, well, I was just saying it was your due to answers at some point. <laughs> Modest farmhouse in the heartland with foundation problems. You may long to be somewhere else. But there's really no place like it. That's the Wizard of Oz. That is the Wizard of Oz. 
Keith is solidly in the lead now. Three to zero and a negative one. This is all, this is trouble. Going very badly. All right. I'm going to have to move house after this. Located in southern Pasadena, the Hill House is fully staffed and can accommodate many guests. Rooms include a kitchen, a dining room, and a study, as well as a ballroom, a library, a billiard room, and a conservatory. That's Keith. Clue? <laughs> yes, it's Clue the movie. No. Uh, I thought that was pretty clever, right? That was clever. Very clever. Thank you. I appreciate that. So this this will be for the film buffs. Which should be all for Shit, should I'm leaving the room. I'm out of here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, <laughs> rustic cabin in the Yukon. No heat, completely isolated, teetering off the edge of a cliff. Yes, Keith? Oh, I'm going to change the answer. I was going to say it is now going to be the gold rush. It is the gold rush. But is that fair? Because I buzzed in and you kept talking. No, no, we, we, we've been buzzing. You've, right. Everyone's been buzzing before I've been finishing these things. And I actually had more, more to that clue, which was for entertainment, you've got two forks, two dinner rolls, and your imagination. <laughs> so Keith is just insurmountable lead at this point. I only have like yeah, 10 right. questions here, but maybe he'll just run the table. I've uh, given hope not just on this game, but in life. <laughs> oh, this is bad. So uh, Keith, hey, no, hey, come on, man. Take it easy. You've got this in the bag. Uh, quit running up the score. Designed in 1960, the retrofuturistic Chemisphere House in Los Angeles looks like a flying saucer on stilts, offering a panoramic view of the city. Yes. I was going to say sleeper. No. I held back. Okay. I okay. held back. <laughs> I wanted to say body double the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's body double. double. I could, you know, though, though, oh, there, though yeah, it's yeah. been featured in a couple other films. Yes. I, I should have tripped you up by actually doing what one of the Lethal Weapon movies had it, and they did a model of it in Charlie's Angels. You know, it's not always body double, but uh, in this case, it's body double because uh, <laughs> my other part part of the clue was and for the Swinging Bachelor, plenty of space for a rotating circular bed. There we go. All right, here we go again, Tasha. We just we just need something from you here. <laughs> For the high-powered businessman looking for some action, this Beverly Hills hotel is known for its discretion and above and beyond personal service. Suite includes balcony far above the ground and an accommodating tub. Steps away from Rodeo Drive. That sounds like every movie set in California ever. A high-powered businessman looking for some action from maybe a prostitute, say. <laughs> Come on. Keith is, Keith Keith is, is making me, for God's sake, somebody. Pretty woman? Yes, pretty woman. I never saw a pretty woman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I have no regrets about that, honestly. Yeah, except I mean, until now. Mm-hmm. You have finally made me wish I've seen pretty yeah, women. Yeah, yeah. You would have. That wasn't that. Was it that hard to kill? It wasn't too, one too bad. Uh, I, until you added the postscript, I. Okay. I didn't yeah, okay. It. So maybe it doesn't count. Take that point yeah. away from me. Well, you know, though I, I, will, I will say, I, I was happy to use my favorite realtor term, which is steps away. Yes. From wherever steps away from from the train. Yeah, if you if you'd said steps away from a place where you'll eventually be permitted to shop, I would have gotten the Romeo <laughs> Michelle reference. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But okay, no, I never saw the original. This is, this is the last one. You might need to get lost to find it, but this rural two story is a butte, completely isolated, lots of land, and a solid metal door inside. One visit and you'll get hooked. <laughs> Keith. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's right, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Wow. This is a this is a beating even even by Keith's standards. Yeah. And you can't see it, but Keith was making it seriously, guys, you don't know this, you don't know this. Uh looks. Uh, so, <laughs> so the final score language. the final score was was uh was eight for Keith and negative one uh for Tasha and Nathan. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm we should willing just to rename these the devastation. One. Yeah, that was rough. That was rough. What? I will donate my negative one to Keith to make him happier. Yeah. Oh, wow. Let, let us forget this game ever happened. <laughs> uh, hopefully there'll be no record of it on the internet. Uh, I think that a tape should just be things 
Keith doesn't know about. <laughs> okay, I'll think about that. Keith, Nathan, Tasha, thank you. Huzzah. I'm not thanking you for that one. Now we've reached 30 seconds to sell, wherein Nathan Rabin and Noel Murray uh, have 30 seconds to convince me to buy their recommendation, whether it's for a film or soundtrack, an idea, a vibe, uh, whatever. This week, uh, since since Halloween is coming up, I'm looking for you guys to scare me a little bit. Whoever scares me the most, whatever cheap tactics you want to use for that, that'll work in your favor. So, uh, Nathan, let's start with you, timer, and Go. I am going to recommend a, uh, a book uh, called The Disaster Artist. And it's about a man who befriends a monster named Tommy Wiseau. Uh, but this monster, he really just wants to be loved. And he terrifies you know, the villagers. They come after him with a, with a, with a, a pitchfork and whatnot. Um, and their friendship leads to this movie called The Room uh, that is reviled. Um, and even though this, this is a spooky, spooky tale, very, very creepy, very disturbing, it also is very, very sweet. Uh, and, and the friendship between this monster, this terrifying, horrifying monster who just wants <laughs> Uh, wow. All right. <laughs> this sounds this sounds like a, a repurposed <laughs> recommendation for a non-scary week. What? But but, uh, but, uh, but I'm not going to cast judgment on that yet. All right. All um, right. Let's hear from Noel first. Uh, one, two, three, go. Uh, I'm going to sell you on the Severin Blu-ray of House on Straw Hill, mainly because it has a third disc, a DVD. Uh, that includes the David Gregory documentary Ban the Sadist Videos, which is all about the video nasty scare in the UK in the early 80s. At a time when there was rampant unemployment, uh, new video stores were opening up all over the country. Um, and uh, uh, shoot, <laughs> I've lost my train of thought. I, 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 and uh, this documentary deals with the, the outcry. Oh, oh, my God. Wow. No, that was... <laughs> That was a choke job. Because uh, I was like, I was like, you were like completely well. You were well on your way to taking this one. I have to say, just just by virtue of choosing something that was horror related. Uh, but uh, but I'm afraid that uh, I'm afraid that I'm gonna have to go with uh, Nathan on this one. Oh, another victory for the room. Uh, all right. All right, guys. I don't know what I don't know what the hell happened there. I wasn't scared by either one of your recommendations. Uh, all right, uh, Nathan Noel, thank you. That does it for episode seven of the Dissolve Podcast. Please join us in two weeks for more opinions, insight, and general tomfoolery. In the meantime, you can enjoy the Dissolve in Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and website form. And if you have any questions or comments for the Dissolve, you can send them to feedback at thedissolve.com, and we may read or respond to them on a future podcast. Or we may not. Uh, <laughs> the Dissolve Podcast was produced by shapeshifter Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin the Animal Griffith. Let's all meet again in our nightmares. Yeah.